another podcast from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. Today we're listening to John Smith, whose topic is entitled Napoleon Bonaparte, the Royal Navy and me. John had a career as a seaman officer, specialising the fine old-fashioned way of gunnery, and retired as a commander in 1976, then to take up a second life in management, accountancy and the law. John is a past Vice President of the Naval Historical Society and now serves as Senior Researcher, responding to the innumerable questions from both the community and serving RAN personnel. Napoleon Bonaparte is mostly known for his military activities. However, in the latter part of his life, the Royal Navy featured strongly, and indeed, some of the procedures adopted by the Royal Navy were still in force in the mid-20th century. Our speaker was involved in one of these in 1969, and his talk will bring together the connections. We hope you enjoy John's podcast. Mr President, ladies and gentlemen, Napoleon Bonaparte, the Royal Navy and me. That sounds very presumptuous, doesn't it? On Napoleon Bonaparte's part, that is. (laughs) But I can assure you there are links. And remember that word, links, that comes up later in in my talk. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte. If I push this, there he is, Napoleon Bonaparte, a foreigner, a Frenchman, a military fellow, a general of the Grand Army, who had himself crowned as the Emperor of the Republic of the People of France. He was pretty good, too, as a military fellow, until 1812 when he made a decision which was also made... (laughs) Who's that fellow? Looking for his (laughs) part. In 1812, he made a terrible decision, which was also made 130 years later by another foreign fellow called Adolf Hitler. He decided to march on Russia to invade Moscow. And like Adolf Hitler, they were both defeated by that famous general, General Winter. I think the only good thing that came out of uh, Bonaparte's Russian campaign was that marvellous piece of music, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, because it was full of... Boom! Boom! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Cannon fire. (laughs) That's known as audience participation. Um, Anyhow, 1812, he started to go downhill from then. 1814, the Allied armies marched into Paris, took him prisoner... And they had a bit of an argy What on earth are we going to do with this fella? And uh, so they decided to exile him to a little island off the west coast of it. Sorry, off the west coast of Italy called Elba. Isola d'Elba, as we call it in Italian, for those of you who speak Italian. Um, and there it is, the island of Elba. He was not actually made a prisoner on Elba. He was actually made the governor of Elba. Uh, They thought that would keep him there. They they were a bit loath to put him in jail, but he was made the governor. And he he was full of energy. 
They, they were old medieval iron mines down in the south. They, he got them all going again. He reorganized the administration. He did all sorts of things. You know, Elba really boomed while he was there. He, he uh, had an official residence in his office down in Porta Faria, which you can see there, which is the capital and the main port. But with his own money, he was obviously, you know, lots of loot and that. With his own money, he bought a villa up in the hills above Portofarraia with a lovely garden. And he used to sit there reading and writing his memoirs and looking down on the harbour, waiting for a French ship to come in and rescue him. And after a few months, sure enough, a French ship came in, rescued him. He got on board and he was taken back to the south of France. And off he went tramping up to Paris, collecting ex-soldiers on the way. The, the soldiers loved him because although he didn't condone it, he didn't object to the three pillars of military life, looting, raping and pillaging. And so the soldiers loved him. Anyhow, Abbey got to Paris with this great mob and off he went on his military endeavours again. Not with much public support, but off he went. That was 1814. In 1815, as you all know, he met his Waterloo at the Battle of Waterloo. Now, the Battle of Waterloo was an unusual one. It lasted three days. The main fighting started at about 10 o'clock in the morning. By mid-afternoon, it was pretty obvious to them who could tell this sort of thing and were used to it, mainly the ones who were sitting up on horses, it was pretty obvious that he was going to lose this one. So... Napoleon called his staff officers together, they had a bit of a discussion, and off they galloped back to Paris, leaving the poor bloody Pongos, the Swatties, the soldiers, to battle it out for another couple of days. But they, anyhow, they went back to Paris, presumably he had a bath and changed into a fresh uniform and that, and off he went to the National Assembly, the People's Assembly, the Directory, whatever you want to call it. For two whole days he harangued them. He said, give me more troops, give me more money, I'll beat these infidels. They'd had enough. They'd had enough of this fighting. And I don't think they had much money either. So they, after two days they called him over and they whispered into his pearly ear, sorte, sorte, which those of you who speak French would know means, please go away, please go away. He got the message. So he called his staff officers together in Paris and he said, what are we going to do about this? So he said, we're going to down to the Bay of Biscay. We're going to a little place called Rochefort. Rochefort. And off they went. The staff officers took their wives and mistresses and batmen and that. Napoleon didn't take his wife, but he did take his personal chef. So you can draw whatever conclusions you like from that. Off they went down to Rochefort. Now, there's a series of coincidences that's happened here. Rochefort, the port itself, there were lots of reefs in that outside and roadsteads. And anchored out in the roadstead outside Rochefort, there was a British first rater, HMS Bellerophon, known to the sailors as HMS Billy Ruffian. And he was waiting there. Now, the next coincidence was, about a month before all this happened, an Admiralty Fleet Order had been issued, which was instructions to captains of His Majesty's ships on the procedure to be adopted on accepting the surrender of General Bonaparte. 
So the captain knew exactly what to do. They, they hopped in a little vessel, Bonaparte and his team hopped in a little vessel, went out to Bellerophon, uh, they were got on board, the captain... Sorry, <laughs> that screaming is supposed to occur later in my time. <laughs> uh, the, the captain divested them of their weapons, their pistols, their muskets, uh, their Swiss army knives. He took them all off them, bundled them downstairs, put them under guard, weighed anchor and set sail for Merry England. Well, for Merry England, he set sail for actually Plymouth. He didn't, uh, the captain of Bellerophon didn't go into Plymouth Harbour. He anchored out in Plymouth Sound because this whole business was micromanaged by the British government and they'd issued an instruction saying under no circumstances whatsoever was Bonaparte to be allowed to set foot on British soil, on English soil, sorry, on English soil. So he had to keep uh, Bonaparte on board. For three weeks they waited out in Plymouth Sound while the government decided what was going to happen. But this turned out to be an absolute mozza for the people in Plymouth because although he was kept under guard, at set times each day he was allowed up on deck and all the boatmen knew what time it was so they used to hire out their boats, the people put picnics <coughs> in them, they'd go out and uh, um, they'd go out, as you can see, our photographer was there at the time, <laughs> and, and uh, they'd come out, they'd have picnics, and when Bonaparte came on deck, everyone would laugh and wave at him and cheer and that, and he'd stand there with a surly grin on his face saying, cochon, cochon, which those of you who speak French know means pigs, pigs, and that. Uh, but anyhow, look, look, in Plymouth, you couldn't get a room at the inn. The B&Bs were all booked out. The, the Plymouth Tourist Office ran out of welcome to Plymouth pamphlets. The weekly newspaper, What's On in Plymouth This Week, for three weeks, ran the same front-page story. It, it was incredible. The breweries and distilleries were going flat out. But eventually, the British government made up their minds what they were going to do with him. They were going to send him down to the South Atlantic, to a little island called St. Helena. But here lies a problem. Bellerophon was 50 years old. She was rotten. The Admiralty said she'll never get down to the South Atlantic and back. In fact, she was scheduled to go to Chatham to be de-rigged and turned into a hulk. So along comes another ship, HMS Northumberland, flying the flag of Admiral Coburn. And she was detailed off to take a convoy, troop ships, store ships, and Mr. Bonaparte, General Bonaparte, down to uh, uh, St. Helena. There's HMS Northumberland. Fortunately, they printed a stamp just for this talk, but uh, there's Northumberland. Now, um, Northumberland didn't go into Plymouth. She went to Torbay, which is just to the east of it, with, and assembled the convoy, and so Bellerophon had to go round to Torbay. And once again, fortunately, our photographer was there and he took a photograph of Bonaparte being transferred from Bellerophon to Northumberland. So there you have it. We got him there. Off they go to St. Helena. Now, uh, incidentally, the troops who were going to guard Bonaparte down in St. Helena were the 53rd, 2nd Battalion of the 53rd Regiment of Foot, the Shropshires who incidentally had been in the Peninsular Wars and also been in the 
Battle of Waterloo, as I suspect every other regiment in the British Army had, so I don't think it was any great significance. But any, they, they were to uh, guard him down there, down in St. Helena. There it is, way down there. Now, St. Helena had an interesting history. Way back in the 16th century, you probably read the Portuguese Vasco da Gama and that. They found if they went in their little caravels, they went out, of, they normally only went fishing. But if they went down the coast of Africa and they went down far enough and they got around the corner, there in front of them was the Indian Ocean. And way over there was Goa, which was turned out to be an absolute treasure house for them. And every three years, they used to send a convoy from Portugal out to Goa and collect lots of treasure and bring it back again. The whole procedure took three years. From By the time they got back and gave R&R to the, to the crews and that, and then they sent off another convoy. It took three years. Yeah. And they had to have spots along the way to stop and get fresh water mainly. St. Helena, a volcanic island, uh, good soil, vegetables, fruit grew well there. Being a, a, a mountain island in the Atlantic there, lots of rainfall, fresh water, ideal. So the Portuguese set up a trading post there. They only did this for about 100 years. The king, king of Portugal, 100 years later, got more involved in wars with Spain and that. And so the convoys stopped. Who came in to take their place? The Dutch. The Dutch had discovered if you come down here too and you went across, you could get to the East Indies. So they set up. The Dutch East Indies Company set up a trading post in St. Helena. They lost, they lost interest because they thought Cape Town was a much better place because they could get cattle and sheep and that. So they moved their trading post from St. Helena uh, to, down to Cape Town. Who steps in next? The Brits. So the British India Company set up a trading post there and uh, once again it was used for the same purpose, ships going around to India. They made it a colony and they gave it a governor. So you had a governor of St. Helena. It wasn't just a trading post. It was an important place. Anyhow, uh, Napoleon was um, uh, exiled there. Uh, if you want to, there's a very good book was published about three years ago, written by Tom Keneally, called Napoleon's Last Island. Um, and it's a very good description of his time on St. Helena and, surprisingly, the ties with Australia, which one, one, I was saying earlier to someone, one of the best collections of Napoleon Bonaparte artefacts in the world are in Melbourne because of this connection. Anyhow, there he was. Now, the Brits were still very worried. Because he'd been rescued from Elba, they were going to make sure he wasn't rescued from St. Helena. So a meeting was called in London. It was actually called by the Chancellor of the Executive. <laughs> yeah, the, the Treasury, the money main means. It was actually called by them. The War Office was there, the Admiralty was there, and the Colonial Office was there. And they had a big map of the South Atlantic, and they were looking at unoccupied islands that the French might occupy. And the only one really of any significance was Tristan de Cunha down there. And... Uh, um, so what they decided to do was to land a small detachment of Royal Marines there it, it, Tristan de Gunner was un, uh, uninhabited it, it, was, it had no harbour, no wharf or anything like that it's great, you, the only use in life and incidentally it was named after one of the Portuguese navigators Tristan de Gunner from way back the only 
beauty it had was, once again, it had lots of fresh water because of, of the rainfall. And on the east coast, there was a tiny little inlet which had an enormous waterfall coming off it, and ships could just lie off there and send their boats ashore and top up their breakers with fresh water. And so the whalers going down to the Antarctic used to top up their water there on the way down and on the water way back. That was the only use that Tristan de Kuna was put to at that stage. Anyhow, these Royal Marines were landed there. Quite a few of them were married accompanied. And uh, they were told that, right, your job is to make sure the French don't land here. That's what your purpose in life is. We'll send a warship here every year. We'll send one, and we'll give you old canvas and old rope, and we'll give you a new Union Jack to hoist up at the mast. And uh, uh, so off they went. Back to St. Helena. There's an opponent there. 1822, he carks it. He dies. And uh, in 1824, the money beams, the fellows in London, they called another meeting of the same people and said, why are we spending all this money on these Royal Marines down in Tristan de Kuna when Napoleon Bonaparte died two years ago? I mean, the French won't set up a rescue mission now. And, and so it was agreed that a, sh a ship would go down and uh, explain the situation to the uh, Marines there and say, any of you who want to come back to Merry England, we'll take you back. Any of you who want to stay there, you can stay there, and we'll send a ship there every year, give you old coves, camps, old rock, new Union Jack, and you'll be part of the British Empire. Uh, you'll be, in fact, part of the colony of St. Helena, uh, and the governor of St. Helena will become the governor of St. Helena and Tristan de Kuna. Now, most of them uh, decided to go back to England, but quite a few stayed. It was good. I mean, it was better than England in 1820. Uh, um, there was good soil, good volcanic soil. They could grow potatoes there, lots of seafood. They'd had various cattle and sheep landed there. It, you could look after yourself quite well there, so quite a few of them stayed there. So that was decided. The next year, the first ship came down. The first warship came down from St. Helena, and said, the captain went ashore and said, you know, how are you all getting on there? Whatever captains say when they go ashore to funny islands like that. There were four bachelors. Most of them were married accompanied. There were four bachelors. The four bachelors tugged at their forelocks and said, Sir, we have a request. And the captain said, Well, what is it? And they said, Well, sir, these married fellows are all right. They're on a good wicket down here. He said, But us bachelors, you know, it's, it's not much fun, sir. It's not much company. Is there anything you can do about it? So, anyhow, the ship eventually went back to St. Helena. And... Uh, uh, the captain was obviously having dinner with the governor and the governor said, you know, how are my troops getting on down there in St. Helena? And the captain told him the story about the bachelors. Now, I've been to the archives in Kew and I've seen quite a bit of the story of this. It's not recorded what happened next. But the next year, when a ship went down to Tristan de Kuna, would you believe it had on board four young ladies from St. Helena? No idea how they were chosen but they were taken down to Tristan de Kuna. What is recorded is when they went to Tristan de Kuna, they blindfolded the four bachelors and they chose their brides blindfolded. <laughs> so so here, here we are. We've got quite a little sort of colony developing here. Uh, over the years, there were various shipwreck mariners, you'd call them, I guess, uh, from the whalers and that, who joined the 
population there. In 1870, there was an Italian seaman from one of the whalers called Willie Repetto, uh, who finished up on the island. And uh, remember that name, Repetto? Um, but uh, it, it gradually grew. Um, right, so that's the story of Napoleon, St. Helena, and Tristan de Kernawire developed. Now we come to the important part of the talk, me. In, uh, I did the long gunnery course in 1956, and in 1958 I started two years exchange service in the Royal Navy. And uh, I, th I think I should have showed you some pictures of Tristan de Kuna there. That's Tristan de Kuna, volcanic island, 20 miles long, 5 miles wide. There you can see the volcano. <laughs> uh, it, because it's steep out of the sea, you can't anchor off it. You've got to just lie off. It's, it's not a very welcoming place. Um, the, uh, uh, anyhow, in my exchange service, the first ship I served in was a funny little frigate called HMS Lynx, which was covered with guns, but was absolutely hopeless. It had eight diesel engines, which never worked and, and that. But I, I was uh, uh, posted to Lynx. There it is being bombed by the South African Air Force, by the look of it. Uh, <laughs> um, it was an anti-submarine exercise. We were doing it, it's all right. Um, and anyhow, we worked our way down the west coast of Africa, and we finished up in Simonstown, which is where we were based, in 1958. In February 1959, we took the governor of St. Helena and Tristan de Kuna across to Tristan de Kuna. The RN, in 1959 were still sending a ship every year to Tristan de Kuna, uh, as they promised way back. Now, one of the problems, of course, is there was no harbour, no wharf or anything, to get ashore. There was a beach on the northeast side, roughly the lee side, about 100 yards wide, black sand, volcanic sand. And what you do, the ship couldn't anchor. It would stop, lower a boat, you'd get in the boat, and you'd go to the surf line, and out would come the locals in canvas surf boats, rowing out in canvas surf boats, and you have to transfer to that, and they'd take you ashore. Uh, when you hit the beach, all the locals would be there, they'd grab the boat and run up the beach with you all still in the boat. I was sent ashore to do the reconnaissance. I was the first one to do this in, in the ship, to do the reconnaissance. And I'll tell you what, it was the most terrifying couple of hours I've had going through the surf in a canvas surf boat and then being run up the beach. Anyhow, I, I got there and uh, I had to do the reconnaissance and talk to the locals. While I was there, a storm came up and the ship had to go away. It was not a very pleasant place to be. So I spent three days marooned there and got to know the locals fairly well, actually. Yeah. Um, we eventually got the governor and the guard ashore and there's Lieutenant John Smith as officer of the guard with the governor of St. Helena and Tristan McCurna. But... There is most of the population of Tristan de Kuna when I was there. It, as I said, I got to know them fairly well. It was very obvious that th there were 11 surnames and about 220 people when I landed there. And it was fairly obvious that the dominant surname was Repetto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so anyhow, that's how I got involved with Napoleon, the Royal Navy and me. Now, there's an epilogue to this story. I was there in 1959. You can see the mountain up behind the village, if you call that. In 1962, the dormant volcano blew. 
and you know first time in recorded history in Bone the lava stream came down <coughs> it just missed the, the village as such but it covered the beach so it stopped any movement in and off of the beach the British and South African governments launched an enormous rescue effort and took all the people back to England to Calshot actually which was an abandoned uh, Royal Air Force station outside Southampton it was where they based their flying boats and also for those of you who are aviation buffs it was where the Snyder Trophy aircraft that eventually became a prototype of the Spitfire repeatedly where that was based anyhow they sent them there after about two years the Tristan de Kuna people put in a petition to the British government and said please sir we want to go back to Tristan de Kuna it was signed by all except ten teenagers who thought that life in England was a lot nicer than it was in Tristan de Kuna anyhow the British government took them back and it poured an enormous amount of money into Tristan de Kuna um, there's not an airfield there but uh, there's a nine hole golf course um, there are roads there are vehicles there's a post office which does a roaring business selling Tristan de Kuna stamps all around the world um, and would you believe there's a tourist office and the woman who runs it her name is Mrs. Rapetto <laughs> <laughs> if, if you google Tristan de Kuna you'll see a wonderful little movie of what it looks like it looks nothing like that at all the houses are quite modern and that and this was all done by the British government at an enormous expense the reason being they had down the South Atlantic three colonies South Georgia Falkland Islands and Tristan de Kuna and they wanted to keep them occupied uh, for obvious reasons anyhow ladies and gentlemen that's the story of Napoleon Bonaparte the Royal Navy and me <laughs> if, if you've got any questions, any sensible questions? Well, not, not, not a question, John, but interesting parallels almost with Pitcairn Island and Fletcher Christian. Uh, he didn't take enough women with him and it led to his own murder in due course. But <laughs> Pitcairn Islanders, of course, found their way to Norfolk Island. Mm. I just see little analogies between the story you just told and yeah. well, what's happening in the South Pacific. Well, you ever served in a ship with the Royal Marines? No. Well, they're funny fellows. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, I didn't mean that. I had a Royal Marine attendant. I served in Bermuda as the second G and I had a Royal Marine attendant and my shoes have never been so highly polished in all my life. I couldn't look down, they were so bright. Yeah, they were marvellous, yes. John, is there any reason why they just didn't execute Napoleon? Yeah, look, it, it, it's funny. The British attitude to um, Napoleon Bonaparte was quite odd. Uh, they would not recognise him as a head of state. They would not recognise him as the Emperor uh, Napoleon. Um, but they would recognise him as a general of the army. They, they gave him his military rank. And I'll answer your question in a moment, right? but a funny thing, in Bellerophon, the captain invited him to dinner, to dine with him. In Northumberland, the captain invited him to dine with him. And Admiral Coburn, who was the uh, Admiral Commanding, he invited He declined all the invitations because he knew that at the end of the dinner, there would be a loyal toast to the head of state, oh. and he would not be recognised as the head of state. Oh. So... Uh, you know, you missed out on a free dinner three times. <laughs> but uh, no, they, they, they 
in, in Britain, they called him Boney. They'd recognize the Bonapartes, but they wouldn't call him Napoleon, even though they fought the Napoleonic Wars. Um, they sort of, in a funny way, revered him. And they thought they'd have more trouble with the French if they executed him. Mm. When, um, when he was in Plymouth Sound, he and um, uh, some of his staff uh, wrote personal letters to the uh, British Prince Consort saying, could he please be exiled in the countryside in England somewhere? But they wouldn't have a bar of it uh, because they were too close to France, too easy, lots of French spies in England, too easy for him to be captured. And also, look what a tourist attraction he was in Plymouth. They didn't want another bloody tourist attraction in West England somewhere. Um, they, they had a funny attitude towards him. That in some ways, they revered him. In other ways, you know, he was bony. He was that terrible man. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It was a government decision. It was micromanaged by the government. Uh, you know, the Navy and the Army didn't have a great deal to do with this. So, yeah. How old was he when he died, and what did he die of? Funny you should mention that. I've actually read his, uh, uh, his um, what do they call it? Autopsy. No, no, autopsy, thank you. I've read his autopsy. The French, of course, said the British poisoned him. Uh, that's you know, irrespective of whether they saw him or not. The British poisoned him. He had a lot of stomach problems in his life, in his later life, and... Uh, when he died, there was a couple. There were some British warships in Jamestown Harbour there, with surgeons on board. So the governor detailed off two of the surgeons plus the colonial medical officer, the three of them, to do a postmortem. And they cut open his stomach. And uh, the expression, uh, as I said, I've read this postmortem, said that his inner innards were putrid. Now, I don't know if that's a medical expression or not, but uh, obviously there was something wrong there. Um, the, um, I don't know what he died of. Um, they, they were n naval surgeons were not physicians. They were not post-mortem. They were used to cutting off legs. Um, so they weren't used to doing a detailed medical autopsy of a, of a body. Uh, I strongly suspect it was... You know, could have been stomach cancer. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Stomach but cancer has been mentioned as a possible cause. Yeah, yeah, because of this. Yeah. Mm. John, uh, he's often portrayed with his arm uh, holding his uh, tummy, mm. and I've read that that was to uh, try and ease the discomfort mm. of, yes. I don't know, yeah. uh, some inner. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it probably was stomach cancer, it was yeah. something wrong with his guts. Mm -hmm. And how old was he? I think he was 44, no. Yeah, he, he died in 1822 and he was born in 17 something like that. I, look, I don't know, I'm sorry. I, I was never invited to his birthday party, so. The business about his poisoning, all his, all his staff and all, his, all the people with him on, on the house that was built for him there on social media, they're all French. In fact, he had very little contact with any, any of the British folk. And indeed, there's a curious case of one of, the, one of his staff who died, and they think, from poisoning. Mm -hmm. The same sort of thing mm -hmm. in the poly. Yeah. But that was all internal. Yeah. And I was reading one book where it was... It was many of the people who went with him to St. Mm -hmm. they tried to get away from him mm -hmm. fairly soon. Mm -hmm. There were a few left. And one of these people, he actually willed it. He made, in his will, he made... 
afraid this fellow would have his head. Mm. And uh, which he never got actually when he got back there. Mm. But, uh, there is a theory amongst the French at that particular mm. time that this was this led to his downfall. Yeah. This fellow was in fact poisoning him. Yeah. French. Yeah. Yes, he took some of his staff with him. Yeah. Some of them left. One of the problems was they were uh, all their expenses were paid for by the British government. The governor of St. Helena at the time was an army general who'd actually been in Waterloo in a very minor insignificant role, who was a nasty bugger. And uh, he kept on cutting back on uh, Bonaparte's expenses and the expenses of the people, uh, his staff and that. They weren't happy there. Um, there was an, uh, a fellow, uh, the first place he sat there he lived in was the summer house of the, you call him the general manager of the British India Company, um, and that was converted, and then they eventually built the house that he, Admiral Coburn had the shipwrights built the house that he eventually lived in. Um, the expenses in all of this, they were all, the governor made it difficult and awkward all the time, so his staff didn't like being there, and they didn't like St. Lena, they'd rather be back in France for fairly, yeah. fairly obvious reasons. Yeah, the whole, uh, and the, yeah, as you say, poisoning. The, the, it was a marvellous place for conspiracy oh, theories. Yes. John, uh, I was at the uh, La Perouse on oh, yes. Bastille Day, yes. and, and it was claimed or said that Napoleon had actually wanted to join. La Perouse is Cruz. Now, if that's correct, uh, it was as a he was a young young man, uh, a young soldier, but he was very keen. If that was correct, then he would have been, let's say, 18, 1788. Uh, so he would have been born in 1760. So 1822, he would have been 62. You know, he nearly became a naval officer. Yes, I, I didn't know yeah. that, but I didn't know that he. Volunteered or no, I, I haven't heard that story before. But no, he wanted to become a naval officer. He uh, um, he was born in Corsica, and uh, when it was what we now there's called Italian, and the French shortly afterwards invaded and conquered it, so it became kind of half French, half, <coughs> half Italian. His family, when he was nine, they were on the French side uh, in the local politics, so they decided to migrate to mainland France, and he was. At the age of nine, he was sent off to a little military academy up in northern France, a place called Chevreuse, I can't remember his name. It was a very small military college, only 140 cadets. And in his third year, uh, a recruiting team came from Paris to recruit the graduates of the college for the various regiments. He was always very interested in mathematics, and the mathematics of navigation appealed to him. And uh, so he said, I want to be in the Navy. But there was a rule that you had to have four years in a military academy before you could go in the Navy. And he'd only had three years. You could go into the Army after only three years, but for the Navy you had to have four years in a Naval Academy. So he was turned down. But he was still very interested in mathematics. And that's why he became an artillery officer. Because you reckon that had lots of different... But I didn't know the story that he wanted to go out with La Perouse. Because I, I, he never understood the use of sea power. Never understood that and he never understood getting past Egypt. Yeah. He knew he should, but he couldn't understand how he could do it. 
So, yeah, I'm fascinated to hear that story. Hmm. I, I can't vouch for the truth of it. Yeah. It was. Well, uh, you, you, know, you know the French own a little bit of Laperes. Yeah. Mm. yeah, down the cemetery. Yeah. 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 So, he was 52 when he died. Thank you very much. So, yeah. he was born in 1769. Yeah, thank goodness for Google. <laughs> <laughs> John, when he sorted from Paris down to the Bay of Biscay, that was pre-planned to meet the British frigate, or well, um, what do you think? I mean, there was a British first radar. Bellerophon was doing blockade duty. Being such an old ship, she was not in the main fleet. <coughs> she was doing blockade duty, and she was anchored at anchor in the roadstead outside Reservoir. Yeah. That was pre-planned. You wouldn't think it was his best option, though, surrendering well, to the British. But the French didn't want him. They told him to piss off. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, what, what could he do? Mm. Mm. Yeah. He, he could have gone to Italy. Uh, you were telling the story about the bed he slept in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Uh, he could have gone to Italy, but, uh, I, no, I think, he was, I think he was in pretty poor favour. People were sick of warfare. But Italy didn't really exist in those days. No, no, no. A no. whole series of... Yes, well, well, Corsica was not part of Italy. It was part of the Principality of Genoa. Yeah. But... That's now Italy, and they spoke what's now Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <coughs> I remember in the 60s when I was at uni, reading chemistry books, that samples of his hair, people mm. cut locks of his body, mm. people did analysis along the length of the hair, mm. and they found bands of arsenic in it. And the bands apparently corresponded the growth rate between the visits by the British, by the British doctors to it. <laughs> That's what I read in the chemistry magazine back in the 60s. Each day of the week. Yes, the rings on a tree, I suppose. Yes, Richard. I don't think we should uh, dwell too much on the sentiment of Napoleon. He was the Hitler of his day. Yeah. And I think just rereading Churchill, that Hitler would not have had any indulgence and he would have been promptly executed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, warfare had uh, increased since then. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, I was overseas last year in a little uh, country town called Bishop's Walton, in the middle mm-hmm. of Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And in the pub there, called the Drum, sorry, the George, uh, there were a number of um, uh, paintings of um, Battle of Trafalgar. Apparently, the story was that uh, Villeneuve, the captured uh, admiral, was. Um, incarcerated uh, in Bishop's Walton, as indeed many of the um, French naval officers captured at uh, Trafalgar were. And uh, he um, requested permission to attend Nelson's funeral, which was some months later uh, in London, and uh, this was acceded to. Mm. Uh, But apparently Bishop's Walton, which is about um, 10 miles north of Fareham, uh, was considered far enough inland to uh, prevent any escapes, mm. but there had been some escapes. Mm. And during this time, Napoleon uh, agreed to a prisoner exchange, mm. and the rate was one French uh, captain for four British frigate captains. Not a bad rate of exchange. Mm. Apparently this went ahead. Mm. So all the uh, captains who were captured at um, Trafalgar were actually repatriated uh, within the year mm. back to France. Mm. And uh, Villeneuve was amongst them, but he uh, received no favours from Napoleon whatsoever because he wasn't lucky. In fact, he was damn unlucky. Well, Napoleon didn't understand sea warfare. Mm. He didn't understand seamen. You know, he, it was beyond his ken. He was a, 
an artillery officer. That, that's why he's so brilliant on the field. Anyhow, uh, he picked up uh, uh, the, the four um, uh, famous, mm. uh, to him, uh, captains, mm. and uh, entertained them to the lead. But uh, Villeneuve was never called out, and uh, the, uh, the story is that he was murdered by the secret police within six months of getting back to France. Yes. Conspiracy really theories well. again. <coughs> yes, Peter. Yes, trivia thing. There is a place in Queensland called Villeneuve, because I think the second Thank you. You are full of trivia, Peter. Yeah, well, you know bad as It's useful. No, I was going to repeat what I told you earlier. Um, St. Helena became a bit of a sort of pil pilgrimage for people going from Australia to mm. England because the, Napoleon's grave was quite a considerable uh, structure and it was a big rectangle and it had willows planted mm, right there. Yeah. And uh, my wife's ancestors who were the first people into Western Australia, Augusta and Malloy, he'd fought at, uh, uh, in the peninsula and at Waterloo. And uh, he brought a cutting of one of those willow trees and planted it in his house in Bustleton. And it's still there today. Mm. Mm. Yep. <coughs> The other, the other thing you were talking about, Waterloo, um, another small. bit of trivia, I went to a very interesting uh, conference on archaeology at the National Maritime Museum a few weekends ago, and there's a fellow there called, I think his name's John Pollard, who's uh, been uh, excavating the uh, uh, graves of Fromel, mm. and he's also uh, doing archaeology at the Battle of Waterloo, mm. using the paintings that were done at the time, sort of trying to recognise places. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there was an article talk. about that in the Semaphore magazine. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, a gunnery to, to artillery link in Waterloo that may interest you. There was a cable television program this, today about artillery and gunnery, and they say that. Waterloo would have gone the other way if it hadn't been for Mr. Shrapnel's sh shells, which the British hadn't had and they were brand new, and that Mr. Shrapnel actually paid for the development himself because he was a wealthy man. But apparently the, the, the British artillery was far more effective than the French expected it to be because of the, the, the sh shattering shells. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's one of the best ways to kill soldiers yeah. and soft vehicles is to fire above them and let the shrapnel come down, yeah, yeah. Mm. It was mentioned before me, you know, I played golf with a fellow called Usher, two misses. Yes, uh, uh, one of his forebears was the captain of the ship that took Napoleon Bonaparte to Elba. And apparently got it very well, but, mm. but there is a book out which has got Usher's journals, in mm. fact he left me his book, mm. with Usher's journals, and it's also got Admiral Coburn's secretaries notes mm. for the trip down to St. Helena and it's mm. absolutely fascinating. Mm. Uh, all together now, ex-CNS Ian McDougall is a real buff of mm. Napoleon. Mm. In fact, he will be going to St. Helena mm. next month. Mm. Uh, and anyway, I, I told him about this particular book. It wasn't mine, I couldn't give it to him. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for more information about Australian naval history, 
then you should use our website. You will find more podcasts, articles from our quarterly in-house magazine, Naval Historical Review, and a range of e-books, monographs, and ship's plans available for sale in our online shop. If you have any questions or research inquiries about Australian naval history, then feel free to contact us. Use the link on the website homepage. The Society is a not-for-profit organisation which relies on your continuing support. Please use our website links to become a member, or donate now, or sign up as a volunteer, or subscribe to our newsletters. See you next time. Thank you.